Hello and welcome to another episode of African Jokery. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. Hello everyone, uh, thanks Ife. My name is Dihia and I'm the co-host of African Jeopardy and I'm recording from Vancouver in Western Canada. Today we are going to be talking about a very important topic and that is disaster risk management in Africa with a focus on averting conflict over water resources. And we have an amazing person to talk with us about this. Yes, today we have with us Fendi Mwapé-Viladzen, who has recently joined the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies as Humanitarian Diplomacy Coordinator for the Africa region. Fendi is a Zambian national, a trained journalist and former UN diplomat with 20 years international experience in the United Nations in Africa, Asia, Geneva and New York. In her job, Fendi works as a global policy advisor at the Netherlands Red Cross Society, Partners for Resilience, Alliance on Climate Change and Ecosystems, and Advancing Disaster Risk Reduction and Community Resilience. Sandy has two Master of Art degrees in Global Diplomacy and Leadership and Innovation from uh, the University of London and York St. John University in England, respectively. Thank you so much for joining us, Sandy, and we are very pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much, uh, Delia and Ife. I'm very excited to join you guys. Um, your program is very exciting. I know I have... Uh, listen to some of my colleagues that you've hosted. Um, so quite a lot of learning from the questions that you ask and also from uh, listening to your previous podcast. So excited to join you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so we're going to start off by asking you, what exactly is disaster risk management, especially in the context of the African continent? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so when we speak about disaster risk management, we are literally referring to the reduction of exposing people, property, lives to risk. We want to reduce the exposure to risk by using policies and strategies that um, governments put in place, that communities put in place, to avert disaster risk. So this um, refers to us being having the ability to reduce existing risks that we're exposed to. In an instance for the African context, we would look at issues like conflict, for example, whether it's political, community, would look at natural hazards like floods and, um, and, and drought and uh, risks like um, heat and, and, and other tensions that communities may face because of different dynamics that play out. So it's primarily looking at how we reduce exposing ourselves to risks around us. To simplify it, I think in, in people talk language, that's the way I would look at um, risk management. I, I have a question, uh, if I may, um, with regards to that, and I'm really curious to know because I do, I do know that some communities have their own ways of uh, dealing with, or developing resilience, basically. And I was wondering if that is uh, actually if it's captured or how is that captured within um, uh, the works of disaster risk management? Absolutely, yeah. I think one of the most important things we try to look at in mitigating uh, disaster risks is 
understanding how communities are organized. And in a context like Africa, where you still have quite a large population that lives within traditional governance mechanisms, those systems must be respected in terms of how they are governed and how people understand risk and how they themselves see themselves contributing to reducing risk exposure. So traditional mechanisms is definitely a strategy that has to be respected and looked at when we talk about risk management in policies, even at the global level, in policies like the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, for example, when we're talking about climate change and its impact on communities, we have to consider how communities are organized and, of course, make a link between what's happening at the global level in terms of the thinking on developing policies, but linking directly to traditional mechanisms as well on how communities manage risk. Thank you so much for that um, response. And, and, and given that we want to focus primarily on averting risk relating to water resources, I was actually doing a few um, research as, as sort of in preparation for today's discussion. And I, I found that there are a couple of countries on the continent that are actually at a risk of water conflict. Mm -hmm. um, countries like uh, Nigeria mm -hmm. facing ongoing water challenges, Mali, mm -hmm. um, dispute over the Nile Basin between Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and then we have drought in Somalia and water scarcity in some parts of Egypt. So I guess you can say that the continent actually have its hand full, especially in the context of climate change and the current challenges of COVID. So I wonder if you can talk to us about some of the things that not only the continent is doing, but organizations such as yours is, is obviously doing when they've encountered this kind of situation and how the communities are actually trying to work around it. Great. Um, thanks, Ife. Um, I think it, uh, the, the good examples that you give um, from, from the African context on, on where we are seeing the emergence of conflict over water resources. I will speak um, from the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Society's perspective on, on, on how we are working with communities to avert some of these um, crises escalating. But I also want to mention that as a Red Cross, the way we are organized in terms of responding to disasters is that we have the Federation, where I belong, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, that is primarily mandated to respond to disasters that emanate from natural hazards. So issues to do with flooding, with, um, with displacement that happens because floods either have happened, or um, responding to crises like drought impacts and their impact on food security, for example, and um, related health risks. So the, the, the IFRC is mandated to respond to those kinds of disasters. We also have the International Committee for the Red Cross um, uh, uh, Society that is mandated to deal particularly with conflict situation. So the ICRC, when you see IFRC and ICRC, that's where our mandates somehow divert in terms of our focus because the ICRC has a strong mandate in conflict management, working with countries and applying international humanitarian law to ensure that 
the rules of engagement in war situations are applied and that people are protected when we talk about protection of civilians. So that's a whole different conversation when we talk about um, conflict management. When we talk about water and, um, and, and conflict mitigation, of course, because of the impacts of climate change, our mandates are starting to merge a lot. So we have to work a lot with organizations like the ICRC that focus primarily on conflict issues. We speak about um, climate change and how it is impacting water availability. I think this is quite a known um, narrative. In Africa, uh, our dilemma really is, um, is that we are receiving either too much water that's causing flooding and displacing people, destroying property and livelihoods, and also threatening uh, people's safety. The other dilemma is that if we don't have too much water, we're having too little water, which is causing drought. And I think that's where the tensions start to arise, particularly, I think, when it's drought situations. The examples that you gave um, at the beginning, Ife, uh, when you speak about Mali and, and, and Nigeria, and, and also examples in Kenya have a reason where we have seen tensions arise um, in communities because there is such a lack of resource for farmers and, and pastoralists to have grazing land. So that tension starts to arise because it's simply diminishing natural resources for communities to manage how they share these resources. And I wanted to speak particularly on that in terms of the, the different geographical scales that we see conflict playing out because of issues relating to water management. It's intra-community, and I know you've, you've spoken about the, the, the larger issues relating to, um, to continental level um, tensions uh, on water management, but I think the bulk of the situation we're seeing in Africa relates mainly to intra-community and inter-community versus um, transboundary uh, issues that involve countries fighting over these water resources. Now, the African Union, obviously, as a mandated um, entity for, 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 for intergovernmental coordination and cooperation on the African continent, does have mechanisms where they try to bring countries together uh, where tensions arise across borders for water management that they bring them together and, and try in, in amicable ways. Unfortunately, on the African continent, we've not seen um, volatile conflict over water resources, other than, I suppose, some, some, some political uh, tensions um, in relating to transboundary management of water resources. So for the Red Cross, um, my federation, the IFRC, that has at least 1.2 million volunteers anchored in communities. Our work primarily goes into a lot of awareness raising at community level, understanding how communities are structured to deal with potential tensions that may arise because of access to this um, very critical and essential resource that we all need. And like you say, particularly now during COVID, we have all understood the value of water the very basic need to, 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 to sanitize or rather to clean our hands and, 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 and be clean in terms of um, washing off the, 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 the bacteria and the viruses that are spreading quite rapidly. So water is essential, we all recognize that. And um, 
It's a pretty much strategic resource for all economies to function. I mean, when you talk about just having access to drinking water, food production, um, energy supply, and, and even industrial development, water is very central to these issues. So how do we then, as a Red Cross, contribute to mitigating risk that um, ensures that communities do not end up in intense environments to address um, 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 the management of such a resource. Like I said, we are anchored in communities and our aim is really to work with community members that understand how societies, their societies and their communities are organized. Understanding, like we spoke about earlier, the traditional mechanisms that exist strongly in some societies. In others, it's working with local governments that have the mandate on um, ensuring that people at that level of, uh, of governance have the right access to basic services. And our job really is to ensure that we are translating together with communities the policies that governments and traditional mechanisms have in place in terms of resource management, sharing of resources within communities. But more, most particularly, ensuring that there's equitable, that there's equal access to these resources in um, a very amicable way. So that's one of the ways. So a lot of it has to lie on understanding how the communities are organized, but also relaying the right information to different um, scales of, of, of communities to access some of these, these resources. Maybe let me hear from you before we, we continue. Um, and I don't um, keep talking, otherwise I'll, t I'll speak to myself. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So I have um, I have some sort of a follow-up question, I would say, with regards to that. I'm really curious about uh, the interactions and the resources. And I know you went um, a little bit into the interactions and how the, the African Union's roles, but I had a question that relates to that in terms of how stretched thin your resources can be and how do you use them? Because, you know, we often hear, I'm going to play devil's advocate, we often hear, mm. you know, climate-related issues and climate-related disasters, droughts, as you said, um, mm. flooding, you know, conflicts re related in natural resource um, resources issues and conflicts related to those national resource, na uh, natural related issues. And so I was just wondering how the resources were actually allocated towards, you know, managing th these different situations at your level, basically, like how have you ever had a situation where you were stretched thin, for example, or have you had a situation where you had to prioritize one disaster over the other? Just wanted to hear more about that. Thank you. Um, thank you, Delia. Um, it's a very good question, I think, in terms of prioritization, because I think, like you rightly point out, the disasters are unfortunately happening uh, concurrently um, in, in, in this current context of where um, a country could be dealing with flooding in one part of the country and in another, there's literally a drought happening at the same time. So how do you prioritize? One of the ways that we respond as a Red Cross is to ensure that you are saving lives. So where lives are threatened, in that moment, resources normally are, um, you, you make sure that resources are diverted into those activities. 
last year, I think around between um, June and August or September, I might be wrong on the months, the African continent had 11 countries that had appeals for flood response. So in that same moment, there was also a food security um, crisis that was going on on the African continent on most of the countries, particularly in the Sadiq region. We were dealing with responding to food security. So in the moment where you have to support communities to move from a flooded village um, into a safe area, and there's young people, young women um, that are caught in these flooding situations, there's children, our volunteers have to prioritize life-saving measures, and so do the resources at the continental level or even at country level that are mobilized, that you ensure that people are, are taken to safety. That is not to say then that the issues on food security are completely forgotten, because I think the beauty or the strength of um, a movement like the Red Cross is that there is enough resource for some to focus on responding to those crisis moments and others to ensure that you are keeping a radar and an eye on those continued, continuing uh, crisis regarding uh, long-term uh, chronic um, emergencies like food security as we've seen in most parts of, of the continent. And so the prioritization must happen uh, to an extent in that way where you make sure that lives are saved and where food security is really critical and, 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 and people must eat and do not starve, that also is prioritized. So it is, um, it is uh, um, um, a balance that you have to make in terms of how you're responding, but making sure that really nobody is left behind in terms of those critical needs that need to be responded to. And in terms of um, organizing these resources and working with communities, I know that in Mali, where we had to work with women and, and, and access to some farming land through the Mali Red Cross, this is um, in my previous job actually, but um, still part of the Red Cross, we made sure that uh, we wanted to understand how the women at the local level and the men as well understood the uh, land tenure rights that they have as a community to some agricultural farms. So communities were mobilized right at the community level. Different um, members of society came together. They gave what they saw as their priorities in terms of understanding what the issues were to having access to agricultural lands. And then that small community connected to a parliamentary group that started to advocate at a policy level to ensure that access to those farming um, areas were being granted to these small communities. So that's how we try to make these links between high-level policy and, and, and the work that's happening at the community level through uh, sometimes just building collisions uh, between different civil society organizations that are working in communities and connecting those to political entities that have uh, sometimes the power to make changes in how policies are implemented and and resources allocated as well. Um, thank you so much for really your, your explanation and the way you've answered this question so far. Your latest response actually made me think, oh gosh, how would or how might COVID have made things worse? Right? How are you still able? Because obviously with COVID, the droughts were still going on. Like you mm -hmm. mentioned, the 11 countries were still asking for help. 
So how have you been able to do all these things even with COVID? COVID has definitely complicated um, uh, an already strained humanitarian system. Um, COVID happened at a time, um, like I said, that uh, we were still responding to ongoing issues on, on the continent. And the impact of COVID has obviously even worsened the vulnerabilities in some communities. I'm sure you are aware that the economic fallout for most communities has been massive during, um, during the COVID um, uh, uh, period. We only yesterday actually we, we were on a conversation um, that's been organized by, by UN OCHA where we had community uh, representatives speaking directly about how they see this impact of COVID on, um, on the value chain. The whole value chain has been disrupted. So women in the farms have not been able to access because remember a lot of countries went into lockdown so a lot of systems fell apart. So the farming season came and some women that are dependent solely on farming and, and making a living out of, 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 of um, making a produce from, from, from their farmlands have not been able to, to go back to those farms and, and till and plant and ultimately um, harvest what they can sell to markets. And, and from those uh, resources that they sell, they are able to buy extra foods to supplement um, their diets, to send their children to school, to have the little um, pennies that they need sometimes to go even for health care. So these are some of the direct impacts that we're seeing in communities um, across Africa, particularly in, 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 in urban areas, uh, very strained uh, environments already as they are, but in the rural setups as well where, as you know, most uh, people are dependent on small-scale farming to sustain their lives. How have we been responding? The Federation has had um, uh, quite some support responding to, to the COVID uh, crisis. I don't have the figures and I don't want to pull out uh, wrong ones, but we've, had, uh, we've received quite um, a tremendous support um, to some of the appeals that have been issued to respond to the COVID crisis. And some of that have obviously been focus, focusing on issues to do with food security, ensuring that people have the basic um, access to food, to health, but also just ramping up um, our work in promoting hygiene practices, ensuring that people have that very basic essential access to water that we spoke about right at the beginning, and, and that they are practicing the, the protocols that the World Health Organization and the Africa CDC have issued for communities to remain safe. In terms of, I think, uh, adhering to some of the protocols, it's been difficult in some contexts because of crowded uh, situations that some urban environments face. Um, if you have traveled through some of these townships in, in, in um, African cities, the, the whole social distancing concept is, is just non-existent. It's just not possible, it's not applicable. And so how do you make sure that people are actually remaining safe while staying in these really, really crowded areas? So distribution of masks is what some, uh, some of the work that the Red Cross has been doing, going out into the communities and making people aware on how COVID spreads, and ensuring that they are, even within their small circles, remaining safe 
by adhering to what can be uh, maybe termed as 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 as, as family um, little barriers that they create for themselves. But at the same time, you have to remember people are still struggling to make um, to make a living. So people are, have been up and about. So our job has been primarily to ensure that you're promoting health messages through the volunteers that are on the ground, but also ensuring that the volunteers themselves that are getting out are safe as well to ensure they also don't go back and uh, put their families at risk. So it has been a dilemma, but I think the work has been done quite successfully. And um, if you have seen the images of, of, of the Red Cross, they have been in those communities where flooding has happened they have their masks on and they're helping women and children getting to um, to safe areas. So this work has continued in the midst of um, of COVID. And I think that's the strength of the Red Cross again, um, to be able to, to access communities in a time when um, a lot of uh, what you may consider international response has, has been halted because of the restrictions um, that have been put in place by most governments for travel and and just health-wise considerations. Wow, yeah, this is really, um, really impressive. And, and, and what came to mind when I was listening to you is, you know, working and, and sort of the lot of work that a lot of people on the ground or in the at the community level are doing in terms of working with the resources there that is available <laughs> to them and actually bringing about very positive results despite the challenges. So I guess this is my way of saying thank you so much to yourself, your organization and your volunteers for, you know, even rising beyond this current challenge to continue to see that communities in need are supported. Thank you. Thanks, Ife. Indeed, the, the heroes are really the volunteers um, on the ground. And I also have to, I think, acknowledge the work that goes in at the, at, at the global level, at the continental level, through, through our high-level representatives to, to bring these voices um, to the table so people can actually hear what's going on in the communities and, 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 and listen um, to some of these stories directly from some of those community representatives. And, and, and I think that's how um, the lobby work um, is, 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 is ongoing by making sure we are connecting these voices of um, people that are on the ground dealing every day with these challenges and connecting those to global processes that are able to influence how finances are allocated in the midst of, of, all, this, of, of all this chaos. Okay. Thank you so much. Dihia, do you have anything to add before we wrap up? Because this feels like we've really had a lot of interesting key points so far. I, I, I did have questions with regards to COVID, but I'm, I'm going to refrain to ask them because I think our audience may have had enough of hearing stuff, <laughs> you know, COVID-wise. So I'm going to refrain, but I'm, I'm, I must say, I'm really, this got me like even more curious, to be honest. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm biting my tongue right now. I'm biting my tongue right now, to be honest. So, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Tenji, for this. I really appreciate it. I have learned so much. Um, and I have to say that, as you mentioned, like, yes, the heroes are on the field, but you're also a hero. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I do hope we can continue talking. And I know that you guys are very passionate about the 
conversation on water and um, conflict mitigation on the continent. So we can keep talking about that, maybe zoom into um, one or two few particular areas where we can, we can actually just get to the details of how we see community level um, interventions and, and how conflict is resolved. I think at the continental level, it would be interesting to also look at some of the transboundary initiatives that are ongoing. Like I said, I think Africa in that sense is quite fortunate because we do not have sort of full-blown conflict um, relating to water management between countries. And, and, and just looking at how, because again, I have to take you back to the issue of diminishing resources, particularly water at community level, where the tensions tend to be rife. Um, it's either within communities or between communities, so they tend to be very localized incidents. But that's not to say that we, we should put away that risk in terms of how it can potentially blow up if we do not learn to properly and uh, sustainably have strategies that address water management at the continental and uh, regional and national levels because uh, the climate change impacts that we're seeing on access to natural resources are quite dire. And so we have to consistently remember that prevention is obviously better than cure. And where we're seeing the red flags, I think we should be more, um, more proactive in putting up strategies and engaging communities before we see um, um, situations escalate to what is potentially unmanageable. But so far, um, they are intra-community and some inter-community, I think, tensions that we're witnessing, uh, but those are, are normally resolved locally as well. So let's see how we can harness, again, the, the power of our traditional governance systems, our community um, institutions to see that there is enough um, attention being given to where we are seeing uh, red flags um, starting to fly in terms of where tensions are rising relating to water and land uh, resources. So thank you again for this opportunity to speak to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much again. And thanks everyone for listening. Um, it's, it's really been a privilege talking to you, um, Tandy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, yeah. Thanks, Ife. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.